Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, Pastor Ben Hartwig speaks to us on the passage of the fig tree. Pastor Ben explains how the passage is an illustration of a spiritually barren nation and shows how fruit in the life of the believer is a demonstration of true salvation. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21 as Pastor Ben delivers his sermon on this very important issue. Matthew chapter 21 is where we find ourselves this morning. Uh, We'll be looking at verses 18 through 22. Matthew chapter 21, verse 18 through 22. In the morning, as he, it's Jesus, in the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Let's pray. Father, we... We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for all of the things it says to us. And, and Father, we ask, Lord, that you would teach us by it. Um, Father, not just for simple knowledge and be able to win arguments and things like this, but, Father, for your glory, your edification, our salvation, our sanctification. Father, grow us by your word. Father, we live in the midst of an unclean culture. Even with the church at large, Father, we recognize that it is often misguided. And Father, we ask that it would not be so for us, Lord, that we, our worship would be clean, it would be pure, it would be directed as it ought. And Father, we ask that you would just use us for your purposes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, As we look at this and we think about Israel, Israel had a mindset that they were far too wonderful to be cursed. They were far too great to be cursed. They were were somewhat untouchable. And, you know, as we go through this, I, I'm, not gonna, I, I'm not equating Israel to the United States in, 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 in every single way, but there's obvious application, I think, that comes from a lot of these things that are here because we often see ourselves as we are, we are God's chosen people. We are so wonderful. The, you know, we here in our culture, in our country, we are greater than everybody else. We're better than everybody else. We kind of get a superiority complex. And for Israel, they had a lot of that going on. They had a lot of, of superiority complex going on. Nothing could touch them. Nothing could go wrong for them. Well, here, with what's going on in this chapter, in this passage, and then this, this week that this fell upon, if you back up a couple days from whenever the cursing of the fig tree took place, you'll find on Monday morning of Passover week, you have Jesus riding into the city. 
He's riding into the city on a donkey. He's got a Messiah's welcome there. He's acclaimed as the son of David. People are shouting Hosanna to him. People are praising him, singing his praises. They're throwing the palm branches, their clothes on the road in front of him. And then on Tuesday, things are beginning to change. On Tuesday, he comes into the city and he cleanses the temple of the sacrifice merchants there and the money changers. And now on Wednesday, he enters Jerusalem again for a third time, coming up from Jericho. And, and from Mark, we know that the encounter with the fig tree, this involved two successive days. When we read it here, it looks like one when we read it here. But we know from Mark, as he goes into a little bit more detail, that this actually encounter was a couple Days And Jesus cursed the fig tree on the morning that he entered Jerusalem to cleanse the temple. And then the following day, it was Wednesday, this day when the disciples noticed that it was withered from the roots up. That's not how trees die. It's how trees die whenever Jesus curses them. When I spray my wife's flowers on accident, they don't go from the roots up. They go the other way. This is not how things work. And so this was done by Jesus. This was obvious that this was Christ that had done this. It had withered from the roots up. Matthew then, he takes this event, he condenses these two events into the one account, which he mentions only in regard to Wednesday. But in light of Jesus, you know, just of being, being hailed by the populace as, as, as Israel's great Messiah and King, his cleansing the temple, his cursing the fig tree, this is, this is a special and monumental moment here. Now, not so much to the Israelites, right? But in the ministry of Jesus, in the time of this week, in everything that has happened and is going to happen very, very soon, this was of monumental importance and significance. In the cleansing of the temple, this was, whenever he did that, that was a denunciation of Israel's worship, as was this. The cursing of the fig tree, also a denunciation of Israel as a nation. Instead of overthrowing his nation's enemies, which we know and we've heard it so many times, that this is what they were looking for. Here is this king that's going to overthrow all of our enemies, set everything right politically, and, uh, and, and that's what we want. That's what they, they were after. But instead of doing that, the king comes in and denounces his own people. He denounces his own people. Now, this is, this is not your typical politician. Because when the politician comes and he says the right thing, you know, Ooh, this is what the people like, what does he do? He gives them more of that. This guy here goes the other way. He denounces the nation. Now, we don't like to be told that we're wrong in any way, right? We like to be told that everything is good, everything's great, everything's the best, right? We hear plenty of this, right? About how great and good and the best and all of this, right? That's what we want to hear. That's what we like to hear. That's what they wanted to hear. How this newly acclaimed king was going to come in and defeat all their enemies. But instead, there was a denunciation of the nation. And you got to understand something. As I've already said, this was inconceivable to the Jews, this was completely inconceivable. They could not comprehend that their Messiah, think of the nerve and the gall of somebody to come in and condemn them instead of deliver them. Now we know that's what he was there for, right? Now the idea of deliverance, the definition of the word deliverance there would be defined differently depending on who you asked. Jesus' definition of deliverance and theirs was vastly different. 
and, and again, this, this relates. We should be able to relate um, to this. You get deliverance wrong and what deliverance is and what happens. You get worship wrong, right? If I don't understand deliverance, then I will get my worship wrong. I will misdirect my worship. I will worship the wrong thing just as the cleaning out of the temple, right? It was a denunciation on the worship denunciation of the nation we find this the same in our cultural christianity the prosperity gospel it is a it is a misunderstanding of deliverance and it is a misdirected worship and so now him jesus going to come after them attack them denounce them instead of going after rome is what he should have been doing as far as they were concerned. This is why the accolades that we find in the triumphal entry, because an outsider who doesn't really get it that would look at the Bible and look at this week and see the triumphal entry and then see what happens a week later, how this could happen so quickly, how they could turn so quickly, shouting for the death of Jesus just a week later after praising him. He had conclusively he demonstrated that with both his words and his actions had testified all along. This is what he was saying. This is what he was showing all along. His entire ministry and everything that he was showing them. That he had not come as a political, military messiah. It's not like he, he made them think that he was going to be that. And then he said, no, I'm going to instead denounce the nation. I'm going to call out for your repentance just as John the Baptist did previously. The truth had set in for them. Were they in denial all this time? I mean, presumably, but now the truth is setting in. And we see the truth set in firmly in a couple days. So the truth sets in for them, who he really was. And everything from that point now is becoming very irrelevant to the Jews as far as Jesus is concerned. They had no such use for such a Messiah. They had no such use for such a king. So by joining their leaders and calling for the death of Jesus, the people would declare in essence what Jesus had predicted in the parable of the nobleman. Over in Luke chapter 19. Chapter 19 and verse 12, he said, Therefore a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return calling ten of his servants he gave them ten minus and said to them engage in business till I come but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying we don't want this man to reign over us Jesus cursing the fig tree and a tree dying maybe not was quite as dramatic as the cleansing of the temple but it was equally significant and again in that verse 18 of our passage in Matthew 21, in the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. Now, as I said, the morning refers to Wednesday, the day after the cleansing of the temple, two days after the triumphal entry, and Jesus returned to the city of Jerusalem after spending the night in Bethany as he had been doing, doubtlessly with, with Mary and Martha. And certainly 
Jesus' host would have prepared breakfast for him if he had wanted it, but um, he may have gone out very early to pray there at the nearby Mount of Olives, uh, which is something that he often did, and he had no time to return back to Bethany to eat, or it may have been that he had eaten breakfast long before this, and had, as, after intense prayer and climbing the Mount of Olives, he was, he was hungry again. Regardless, he was hungry, and it's noted here. Just another reminder that Jesus experienced all that we did, Son of God, but in His incarnation, Jesus had all the normal physical needs that are characteristic of you and I. Therefore, He sees this fig tree. So He goes to it. Why? He's hungry. He wants to eat, right? If uh, some of you have been to St. Victor, and I had a young man tell me one time, any tree you want in this village, you can eat from it. It doesn't matter. You know, well, much the same here, I suppose. There was a tree, you can eat from it. So he hoped to find some fruit there to eat it, eat, eat that fruit, and um, he found none. There was no fruit there. Now, the tree looked good, right? The tree had leaves. The tree looked good. And so, therefore, a tree that looks this good ought to have good fruit on it. And, you know, fig trees in this area, I mean, they were everywhere. They were highly prized. It was not uncommon for them to grow very tall, very big. Uh, they made good shade trees. You sit under the shade tree. You uh, gather there. They eat figs. This is what uh, Nathaniel was probably sitting under whenever... Uh, he was uh, called to discipleship, maybe even in his own front yard there. Before the Jews had entered the promised land, the Lord described it to them as a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees, and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. Zechariah, the Lord promised his people that the Messiah's second coming, he would remove the iniquity of that land in one day, and every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Fig tree, place to gather. Now, what's all that for? It's just to simply mention that the fig tree was a symbol of blessing. It was a symbol of prosperity for the nation. But just as it was a symbol of blessing and prosperity for the nation, the absence of it was a symbol of judgment and deprivation, largely because of the many conquests of Palestine after the rejection of Christ, the land became uh, severely ravaged. Invaders would take these trees, they would use them to build uh, machines of war, they would use them for fires, they would use them for whatever. The lumber would be gone from so-called lumber trees, and so the fruit trees, the shade trees, would then come down. There was even a time there in history where people would be taxed on the numbers of, uh, number of trees that they had, so... What do you do? You cut down your trees, right? So normally, a fig tree would produce the fruit before it sprouted the leaves. Therefore, when Jesus found nothing on it except leaves, he was disappointed. He was hungry, right? He was disappointed. Because a tree, as I said, that has leaves should also have fruit. And fig trees would bear this fruit a couple times a year, first time early in summer. Now, whether this would be too, too much, too little water, too dry, too wet, whatever it was, the tree was not functioning as it should. Jesus would use many things from nature, birds, trees, flowers, whatever it was, animals, to illustrate his teaching. And so he comes upon this fig tree and he uses this for an illustration of a spiritually barren nation. And we need to take note here because... This is what we're in the midst of. This is what we find ourselves in the midst of. Here 
we had the spiritually degenerated nation of Israel, and this was largely due to the fact that their worship was corrupted. And we know all about this. You can go a lot of places and you'll find worship corrupted by all kinds of nonsense that we don't need to get into. We know what it is. But we see then, worship was corrupted, thus the cleansing of the temple. And then he said to this tree, may no fruit ever come from you again, the fig tree withers. And because the fig tree was barren, at least of fruit, when it should have fruit, Jesus said to it, or Jesus really declared upon it, no longer shall there ever be fruit come from you. With this, this tree was doomed forever. It was under divine curse. It would be unproductive forever. In our passage, it is implied that the tree withered instantly. But as already stated, although the tree may have died at once, the withering was not evident until the next morning when the disciples came and passed by it and saw that it had withered from the roots up. The fig tree represented represented a spiritually dead Israel. Its leaves represented a, a outward righteousness. It looked good for fruit. You look at it, that tree's got fruit. So he goes to it. The leaves represented the fact that Israel had an outward religiousness, a, a, an outward rigi, religiosity, if you will. And its lack of fruit represented the fact that it was spiritually barren. To paraphrase Paul, what they had was a zeal, but it wasn't based upon real, true knowledge. So my friends, what we need to hear and what we need to get is that fruit is the indication of salvation. If there is no fruit, there is no salvation. Fruit is the evidence of a transformed life in which the power of God can and will operate. And people's right relation to God is evidenced by the fruit they bear. Before this happened, several chapters before, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Likewise, when you look at the parable of the soils, what do we got? The the good soil is shown to be um, good by the fact it does what? It yields a crop. Some crops are greater than others. We recognize that, but always a crop. Jesus taught that the good soil is the person in whom the seed of God's word takes root and grows. Now, folks can cry and whine and complain about someone being judgmental. Fact is, fruit is the manifestation of true salvation. You can say that you're saved. You can go find every church on the planet and walk their aisles, and you can go through their baptistry. You can spout all the little sinner's prayers that you like. But if there is no fruit of salvation in your life, you remain lost. Jesus' overarching point regarding the fig tree was that Israel had a nation, as a nation, they had a, a very impressive pretense of religion. Israel had a very impressive pretense of religion. And, and that is, again, represented by these leaves here. But the fact that the nation bore no spiritual fruit was proof, proof positive that she was unredeemed and cut off from the life and the power of God. And just as fruitfulness is always evidence of salvation and godliness, barrenness is a result and evidence of lostness and ungodliness. We notice that empty religion almost invariably has many outward trappings that come in the form of 
elaborate clerical garments. It comes in ornate vessels. It comes in very involved rituals, physical activities, repetitive prayers, chants, uh, things stated at very specific times, and those highly educated, spontaneous prayers that are very worldly and, and end up glorifying only the one who is praying. And Jesus had already said in the past that these are meaningless repetitions of pagans, prayers of the self-righteous that have made themselves God and ultimately are praying to none other but themselves. God has allowed that which has come on the Jews, destroying both the nation and its religion because Israel has not borne any fruit, which continues to now, to this day. So in cleansing the temple, that was still fresh in their minds when this happens, Jesus' message was that Israel's worship was unacceptable. And in cursing the fig tree, it was that nation, Israel as a nation, was condemned for its sinfulness and its spiritual fruitlessness. Now, with all of that in mind, the people heard this. They saw the fig tree. They saw the cleansing of the temple. All of this happened, and all of this went down, and the people repented. Right? Was there repentance when the people saw this? Now, before we answer that, question that has an obvious answer what we must do and what we have to encourage people to do is that the longer that somebody goes as being hardened and the longer that somebody goes neglecting the gospel the more hardened they become and at this point the people were extraordinarily hardened and whenever this happened and the denunciation of them who are these people who are so far superior to everybody else in the world, as far as they were concerned, are being denounced by this Jesus. Was there repentance when the people saw this? No. The messages of, of doom, the, the, these people would not tolerate this. They had not accepted John the Baptist. They had not accepted his call to repentance in preparation for the coming of the kingdom, or his declaration that the Messiah was coming with, quote, his winnowing fork in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather his wheat into the barn and to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's from Matthew 3. Nor had they obeyed Jesus' command to repentance or his command to come to God in humility and a genuine hunger and thirst for righteousness. Instead, they were even more enraged. They were even more enraged by this word of judgment. Now, for those of us that are saved, we look at such a thing and we say, that should have encouraged them to repent. This is a message of judgment. This is a message of, of doom. This should encourage repentance. And that's why I, I, I plead with you if, you, if you haven't repented, repent now. Because what's going to happen is you, you sit here and you deliberate on these things. I mean, I know I've been lost and I was saved at a later age. And I know because you sit there and you, well, I, you know, I, I don't need to repent right now. I can repent later. I hear about this merciful God and I hear about, no, you repent now. This should encourage us to repent because the longer we go, the more hardened we become as we find here. You keep in mind uh, when the Lord delivered Israel out of Egypt, he declared this in Deuteronomy 28. He said, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. 
And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, the young of your flock. Blessed shall you your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. And blessed be the fig trees. I added that part that's not in the passage, but he wasn't done. Because a dozen verses or so later, he says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes, keeping in mind that these folks that are, that, the denunciation that's happened here with the fig tree, these people knew this passage. Then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be your basket, your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. And increase, the increase of your herds, the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. And I'll just throw in there, and cursed shall be your fig tree. Now, through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord reminded Israel that he had nurtured and cared for her like a man who plants a vineyard in the best of soil, gives it the best care, gives it the best protection. I mean, we, it does, you don't have to read long to see this is exactly what the Lord had done. If that vineyard produces nothing but worthlessness, it will be laid waste. And a long series of curses, woes, calamities for these people come because of unfaithfulness. The people of Israel continue. They continue under the curse of God. The Jews indeed have established the state of Israel, but they're not gathered as the redeemed. Yes, there are redeemed to be gathered there. There are elect there to be gathered in Israel. But none will be gathered lest they repent. And they continue to live in constant turmoil, constant instability constant danger, far from peace. In light of that, we can be sure that Israel won't be destroyed. We know that God will protect, but neither is Israel being blessed because she will not have Him as her God. No one comes to God that does not come through the Son. And as long as Israel will not claim the Son, Israel will have no claim on the Father. Now, with this cursing of the fig tree and then the disciples seeing it in verse 20, Jesus gets, as he, as he does so often, he just takes it and gets very simple with them and very personal. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And you look at those verses and you find the disciples going past the withered tree and they marvel at it. How did this tree wither at once? Trees, as I said, they don't wither and die overnight like this. Now, at this point, he moved from the very visible parable of the fig tree to another truth that he wanted to teach the disciples the principle taught in the parable was that this religious profession without spiritual reality, this is an abomination. This is an abomination to God and, and, and it's cursed. And We harp on this a lot here, but 
This is what our culture has to see. And I'm not talking about the culture, just the random culture. I'm talking about church culture at large needs to see in, 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 a, in a cultural Christianity. The, the principle that Jesus was, 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 was teaching here related to the disciples marveling about how quickly this fig tree withered. They knew why it withered because they heard Jesus curse it. They just could not understand how could it wither so quickly? How can this happen so fast? And the Lord took opportunity to teach them about the power of faith joined to the purpose and the will of God which can do far more than instantly wither a fig tree. That's nothing. And in response to their bewilderment, Jesus answered them and said, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you shall not only do what is done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Not only is that not nothing, that wouldn't be anything either compared to what you will do in faith. Jesus was speaking figuratively. He never used his own power, nor did the apostles ever use their miraculous powers that he gave them to perform spectacular but yet useless supernatural feats. Could Jesus at any time take a mountain and throw it into the sea? Of course He could. He created it. He could do whatever He wants to with it. But He never used His power just to perform some useless supernatural feat. It was actually precisely that sort of demonstration that He refused to give the unbelieving scribes and Pharisees that wanted to see a sign. Jesus had done countless healings which were quite miraculous. Make blind people see, people that never walked, walk. But it was the big sign they wanted, as if that wasn't big enough. But they weren't going to get that. Jesus was effectively saying, I want you to know that you have unimaginable power available to you through faith in me. If you sincerely believe, without doubting, it shall happen. And you will see great powers of God at work. The requirement there for receiving is to ask in prayer the name of Jesus according to His purpose, according to His will. Of course, Jesus was not speaking as we so often hear today about faith and faith or faith and self or finding your hero within or anything like this. Uh, Mountain moving type faith is a very unselfish faith, undoubting faith and unqualified confidence in God where to believe God's truth, God's power while seeking to do God's will. The measure of such faith is the sincere and single desire that as Jesus said, the Father may be glorified in the Son. You have true faith when you trust in the revelation of God. It's when the Father would be glorifying the Son. I may have told you this before, but I remember as a very small child, I wasn't very old at all. I remember um, I was somewhere with my grandmother, and uh, we were sitting at, I believe, a Ponderosa or a Bonanza, if you even remember what those restaurants are anymore, uh, in Madisonville, Kentucky, and there was this little go-kart that you could win. And I may have told you this before, but I told my grandmother, who uh, was, a, was a Christian, and, and I mean, I didn't go to church, didn't know, didn't care, but, but I knew that she was, and she would, I would go to vacation Bible school there, and I asked Grandma, I said, Grandma, can I pray to win the go-kart? She says, absolutely, if you can figure out how to glorify God with it. I just couldn't. And that's the clarification here. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. You have true faith. You trust the revelation of God. You obey the commands of God. He will honor that obedience. And when anything is asked, in accordance with His will, 
When anything is asked in accordance with his will, he provide, he will provide what is sought. Now, whatever our feeble and finite minds like to think, there, there is not an inconsistency between the sovereignty of God and, and, and man's faith because God's word teaches both of those things. It's not your responsibility to fathom God's incalculable ways to try to figure those out, to try to figure out God. It is your responsibility to follow his clear teaching and obedience. So a persistent prayer that is believing God's word cannot be inconsistent with the operation of God's own sovereign will. Because in his sovereign wisdom and grace, he commands such prayer and, and, and he actually obligates himself to honor it. That kind of prayer. He obligates himself to honor that kind of prayer. If you want what God wants, ask and receive. No, you know, God isn't in the business of, of wanting you to have a, a new truck. You know, we don't pray for such nonsense as that, right? This is for real things, things that actually matter, that actually make a difference. The, the very specific missionary, for instance, you know, instead of just simply praying for all the missionaries all over the world, that very specific missionary that you know, that very difficult person that you have been witnessing to, things that matter. If you want what God wants for your family, Pray for that and receive that if you're wanting what God wants for your family. The pastor who wants what God wants for his ministry. But a declining church culture, that will lead to a declining overall culture. Misdirected worship, bad doctrine. This is disastrous. Story here. Local believers Austin and Paige Henderson announced their decision to join the Axis Church after several months of sampling pre-service coffee offerings in churches throughout the city, reports confirm. According to the couple, the decision became simple when they realized what they truly valued in their church worship experience. We sat down, we made a list of priorities every time coffee came in as our number one. When pressed regarding that decision, the Hendersons responded that although sound doctrine is cool, pour-overs are cooler. The Hendersons reported visit, visiting dozens of churches before they landed at the Axis Church, the Anchor Fellowship, Ethos Church, Oasis, Crown Point. They all had great teaching and theology, but they only brewed Folgers breakfast blend. When we saw that the Axis invested in responsibly sourced coffee and teas, we knew this is where God was calling us. Believe it or not, they said, some churches don't even allow coffee in the sanctuary. And at publishing time, the Hendersons were attempting to select a small group strictly on the basis of a group's quality of refreshments. Now, that is satire, and you may recognize it as satire from the Babylon Bee. But that is not far from reality. This is truly how some people pick churches. This is how... So much of our church culture, they do, we do not walk into church. We say, I want to hear if the gospel is preached here. Now, I really believe that we would do that, right? That's how we decide. If we found ourselves having to leave this place and go somewhere else, we would find a church based upon the gospel. You know, I've heard so many times, I don't like this. I don't like the atmosphere. I don't like the lighting. I don't like church isn't about us. It's about God. It's about worship. And it's about that worship being directed rightly. And whenever it starts to go the other way, 
it goes quickly. Friends, the church has to have a full embrace of the gospel. When that happens, you will change a culture. When it doesn't, you get the culture you get. Any deviation from this, no matter how good it feels, is hellish in its sin. Any deviation from the gospel whatsoever. We have to see that the denunciation here in the, in the nation of Israel was a denunciation, as I said, of the nation's worship as the so-called people of God and of their culture as God's people. No, we aren't the nation of Israel. But this is loaded with application for us. We must get quote-unquote, church right. We must get this right. We must always be centered on the word, word. And while the okay things are okay, you know, Josh talks a lot about this, things that are okay, but the things that are more important, the things that are really important, we can never let the okay things overtake the things that matter. The okay things are okay, but we can never let the okay things overtake the things that matter. The okay things are to be an outpouring of clinging to that which actually matters. We have to be bright in a generation that often can be very, very religious but actually has a hatred of the gospel and of God. Now as we close here, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say something about the Reformation or Martin Luther or something. I mean, it is October after all. But he's a good example here because here was a guy that had to reject his way of life. He had to reject his worldview. He had to reject everything that he thought he knew was right. He had an entire worldview, everything that he thought was his right. This was his culture. This was his church. Josh mentioned last week how Martin Luther hated Romans 1, verse 16 and 17. Why? How can Martin Luther hate this, and yet we read it and we can, we can love the passage? How is this? Because the word was not central to him. The gospel was not central to him. That was not his focus. But what happened? When the word became everything to Luther, as we know that it did, when the word became everything to him, what happened? Not only did he embrace Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, he embraced the rest of the word, and then he changed the culture. <laughs> he changed it in a big way. He turned Europe on its neck. And he did it with the truth of the word. My friends, we obey him. We strive after his will. We know that God isn't building his church by just some better ideas, some better programs, better methods. All those things have a place. But God promises to truly reveal his power through faithful believers. Faithful believers who in persistent prayer will seek his will. Not my will. Not your own will not being those who are looking righteous, but those who actually are righteous. And while God will be glorified with or without you, we recognize that, God will be glorified with or without you, those that are going wide open for God, those that are going wide open for God are the ones that He will be glorified through and have the privilege to be glorified through. It's then, through the power of the Word, power of the gospel will not be cursed by the creator but will be blessed by our creator our master and will be changing the world around us in the process of the glory of God let's pray
Father, again, we, we ask that you'd forgive us, Lord, where we have failed you. But, Father, that we would not drown ourselves in our own pity and our own sin, and, but, Father, claim your forgiveness and move forward in repentance, seeking your will, your will for our lives, your will for our church, your will then for the church at large, and to change a world who does not know you. Father, help us as we do this. Be glorified. Father, we do this seeking out your will because worship is not as existing as it ought in the world. Help us, Father. Thank you for this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Ben Hartwig's message on the passage of the fig tree. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.